Dustin Eubanks was a middle school and high school classmate of mine, starring as the Cowardly Lion alongside my Tin Man in our high school's Wizard of Oz. And he also has sailing on his resume. August Osage County is a Pulitzer Prize winning play about a family who reunites after their patriarch disappears. And as they all come under the same roof for the first time in a while, past and present wounds and secrets are revealed, resulting in disaster after disaster. Dustin unpacks some of the themes and meditations of this compelling play and explains why it is a story that he returns to time and time again. This episode was recorded on July 2nd, 2020. And for the record, this episode does contain explicit language, which I say because I've heard other podcasts say it, and I don't know what the rules are. But I also say it because I've always wanted to say it, and Dustin made my dreams come true. Now that said, it's one word, you could miss it. This episode would be rated PG-13 if it was a movie. You'll be fine. Anyway, here's the episode. Hey, hey, Dustin. Davis, what's going on? <laughs> Not much. Just uh, going to record a podcast with you. <laughs> really? Is that why I'm on That's my plan. <laughs> I thought we were talking about advertisements for our new line of uh, swashbuckles. I don't know. <laughs> I, kind of, I, like I was the, to think of something no one I like the moment there where I could tell you were kind of giving, going through the sentence but not sure where it was going to end. Yeah, and I, was, I was trying to think of a product that really has no relevance to well, you current know culture but yeah, yeah. Just, i don't even i honestly don't know what a swashbuckle is i, I have no idea i just <laughs> well welcome to uh welcome to the podcast um let's go ahead and introduce who you are for uh whoever will be listening to this maybe uh give your name okay. and i'll think of a creative question while you say your name uh my name is Dustin Stephen Eubanks. There you go. You get the middle name. Wow. Forget privacy. Yeah, fancy. Yeah, who needs it these <laughs> days? All right, let's see. Uh, if you woke up on like a, a Saturday or a day when you just have nothing on the calendar and the whole day was just up to you, people were available if you want them to be available or they're busy if you don't want to hang out with them, everything is open, every, you know, what would you, what would you do for your morning? On a Saturday? Yeah, or just really any day that you don't have anything. Any day, no obligations. Yes. The world is not locked down. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Hard to imagine, I know. Man. Man, that's that's tough. Uh, my, my first thought, I mean, the very first thing I'm going to do is go to a coffee shop. Mm. And here in Des Moines, that means I'm going to go to Scenic Route Bakery and get a scone Ooh. and a drip coffee. Yep. Black, no cream. And once I have that in my hands... Uh, depending on the whim I'm feeling, <laughs> I, I would maybe take a day trip to Kansas City or Whoa. maybe uh, grab a couple shooters of whiskey and hike to the top of a mountain, throw back Dang. the shooters and hike to the bottom of the mountain. I don't know. I, I've <laughs> got a lot, a lot of ideas in my head. Nothing terribly productive for society. That's good. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the ideal for a day off is nothing that's productive for society. Hopefully not unproductive yeah. for society. Like no, anti-productive, no, but yeah, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think I have a very. Anti- I don't have an anti-productive streak. 
Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a productive streak all the time either. That's fair. Well, that's what nice. about you? What would you do? Oh, uh, I'd probably start off the same way. A cup of coffee. Um, I, I'd probably just find somewhere with some good air conditioning and bring a good book and uh, do some reading. And I think that's maybe about it, honestly. I think uh, some alone time probably. Because I feel like most weeks on like a Saturday, it's kind of after a week of work. And not that I'm sick of people, but I just need some time to refuel. So go somewhere by myself. And I don't know if I'd go to the top of a mountain. But, you know, if I was in the right city and the weather was great, I might, might do it. Uh, I think my idea of mountain is pretty limited to <laughs> considering I've grown up on the plains. Yeah, a mountain um, in Iowa, just a nice little hill. Yeah, but less hills. Those are really <laughs> tall, really, really tall. Very daunting. <laughs> Dang. Well, that, that's pretty no, helpful that's good, to get, that's get to know you. Um, well, we know each other because we went to uh, middle school, high school together, which that's is true. feels like a long time ago. Kind of is a long time ago, I guess. No. We're in our it's 20s. getting to that point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely, I guess, mid-20s, so we're, we're going to approach the 10-year mark before too long. Oh, yeah. And I remembered recently, this is a, a deep dive into our uh, our friendship in high school. We were, we were in the Wizard of Oz together, and we played. Uh, yes. <laughs> I was the Tin Man, and you were the, the Lion. That still uh, <laughs> that still comes up for, for like as far as like high school memories being brought up randomly in conversation. <laughs> The Wizard of Oz, I don't know about you, but consistently comes up in my conversations. <laughs> really? yeah, and I don't fair. exactly know why, but it, it always seems to come back to that. It's probably because <laughs> that's when I peaked. <laughs> they were like, he was meant to do this. This <laughs> yeah. is his legacy. That yeah, was... when everybody can tell I'm feeling down on myself, they, <laughs> they reference the highest, my highest success in they're theater. Like, don't be sad. <laughs> don't forget, you played the lion in high school. Yeah, they're like, you had such a nice costume. <laughs> you really did. Mine was mine was all right. I just got painted silver or whatever, and then we yeah. had like three. Uh, at least you, at least it wasn't toxic. Because that's what happened <laughs> to the original guy that was playing. No way, Tin Man. Oh, I yeah, I it's like that. I don't remember. I don't remember the whole story, but mm-hmm. one of the original guys or the guy, like the first time they tried to put his costume on, yeah, they fucking, uh, oh, I just swore. <laughs> Sorry. You're good. <laughs> Can you edit things out? That's it. Uh, but, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I was a sailor for a bit, for anyone who's listening, uh, <laughs> so I was already someone who swore, and then I worked with a bunch of sailors for nine months, so it's a habit I can't completely break. Dang, that's a pretty uh, intriguing fun me. fact as well, though, you were a sailor. See, there was a good lead-in. Yes, I, I worked on sailboats on the East Coast for eight or nine months. And while swearing was one thing I picked up, I also picked up a lot of very important life skills. Wow. What's so if anyone would like to talk to me about it, you can reach out to me. What's like the best moment of sailing in your experience? If you had to like pick a single minute. Ooh, a single a single minute of like pure bliss. Mm-hmm. Mm, there was a couple times when we were taking one of the boats I worked on called the when and if from Salem to Key West where it was just the uh the perfect perfect condition for say it was sunny it was still cold I can I can remember it was sunny it was still cold but it was a really nice day and the wind was perfect to just kind of like put the boat right on a nice heel and just ride for a while and it was my turn to steer so I got I got a I got to hold us in that like beautifully perfect uh, wind and 
course for an hour, hour and a half. Wow. Uh, it made it, it made the job seem a lot easier than it actually is because <laughs> there were other times that trip where I was like, I, I'm doing this. <laughs> but that was that was very nice. And the dolphins would swim off the boat in those moments too, so that was always really oh, cool. Oh, wow. <clears throat> that's pretty, that's yeah. like a pretty unique experience to have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. cool. I think about going back sometimes, especially after being locked down in the center of the country for yeah, I bet. six, seven months. But, you know, someday. It seems like polar opposites, like lockdown in coronavirus versus sailing on the beautiful yeah, ocean. Yeah, they're, on, they're <laughs> definitely on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. I was supposed to go back and cook for one of the companies a few weeks ago, actually, for their transit. But I, uh, I thought I had COVID, so until I got my test back, I kind of had to call it off last mm-hmm. second. But Dang. That's okay. Well, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, let's go ahead and... Uh, Reveal the book you you had me read, or kind of a book. Reveal, the great reveal. Uh, we read a play uh, by Tracy Letts called August Osage County. August Osage County, a good old play, which is kind of fun that it's not your like a regular book, you know? Yeah, I was trying to think of something that maybe uh, you hadn't dabbled in or maybe other people hadn't thought of, so I don't know if you done any plays i felt like this would be kind of a cool change of pace whether or not you had yeah it was, it was a lot of fun play, so. yeah because you sent me a um a couple options of plays and i think i don't i don't think i've read a play like recreationally outside of like middle school or high school kind of english class and stuff except for the harry potter play because <laughs> i thought well i've read the books i'll read this play too um but it was a it's it's pretty it's a unique experience to read a play after mostly just reading like fiction stories that are generally written kind of same style and stuff. Um, and it, it was kind of fun. Yeah, it's definitely it's a different mental exercise. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive into the uh, plot, give listeners to this podcast a little vision of why you think reading a play is um, special. You know, like th- there are definitely some challenges with it because you don't get as much of you have to like use your mind to imagine a little more. At least that, that's how I felt. But I also felt like there was as many mm-hmm. benefits um, and as as there were challenges. But yeah, give a little convince yeah. somebody well, that's listening that they should consider reading this book if they're already writing it off because it's a play. Ooh, come up with a persuasive yeah. document. I'll do my best. I actually did write down like a pros cons things because nice. you sent me that outline and I, I knew you would ask this question. So I'll kind of, I'll start with my cons and then graduate into the pros to yeah, try yeah. and make my case. So like you mentioned, the hardest thing about reading a play just recreationally is that the acting is missing. So you're trying to mm-hmm. construct the acting in your head. So that definitely takes a certain effort of like visualization plays tend to read very quickly even though they wouldn't actually be acted out that quickly mm-hmm. so if you fly through reading a play too quickly you might be missing a lot of the nuances mm-hmm. that you would uh normally get from the extra detail that's present in fiction or that you would get when the play is interpreted by an actor mm-hmm. and i guess the the other cons if you aren't familiar with reading plays things like stage directions and certain lingo like beat is all new yeah. to you. Uh, it could sound a little bit like a foreign, like a foreign language uh, yeah. if you just haven't dabbled in it before. I didn't even think of that. That's true. But yeah, yeah, uh, and that can be tough. But mm-hmm. that said, 
plays are fun because a they tend to be shorter or quicker reads than diving into like a super long Tolstoy thing. Mm-hmm. I think plays are super digestible because of their length. They're really good because they aren't huge, thick, and like over like overly uh, cumbersome. Mm-hmm. They can be used in a lot of contexts. They're really easy to transport around, like in your bag, like going to the beach or on an airplane. The biggest pro, and this is why people should absolutely read plays too, and this is something I'm trying to be better about because I don't have enough plays on my shelf, but the theater as an institution, not just in our country, but in the world, like the concept of Mm -hmm. acting and skits and performance to make commentary or to entertain or to discuss, that goes way back and in multiple civilizations. Mm -hmm. That goes back centuries or millennia and if you're not reading plays you're missing an entire genre of social discussion Mm. that connects you to past events past people uh historical trends it it connects you to all the things that great fiction and great non-fiction do but in a completely different way, but it's been there the whole time. Like think about right. great theater cities like Chicago or New York. Uh, this is a whole world of literature, just like the world of, you know, it sits next to the world of fic- great fiction or nonfiction or memoirs or poetry. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, and I don't know what that reason is. I know I don't automatically think of looking at the plays like when I go to half price books. Yeah. And I think it's because we do operate on that assumption that it has to be acted out, but mm-hmm. you can still gain so much valuable information from reading a play uh, and all the intention that an author puts into every single piece of dialogue and set uh, set piece. Mm-hmm. You can get all that as long as you practice reading that. Yeah. But yeah, I guess the long yeah. story short, because I tend to ramble, which is why this podcast <laughs> is going to go on longer than some of your others. Like, if you aren't reading plays, you're missing a whole category of literature that has been with us just as long, even longer in some ways, probably, than written writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we just Dang. neglect it. That was, uh, I'd say that was pretty compelling. <laughs> is that a good reading. argument? I, yeah. I, it's, not, it's not short and concise. My English teachers oh, no. would be that upset with me for not being more direct. <laughs> well, they're not listening, probably. If you are listening to this, English teachers, go ahead and let us know. That would be fascinating. Well, How did you come <laughs> yeah, upon well, this you... is the first question I have for you. Why would you open it and listen? But uh, <clears throat> No, that, that was really compelling. I feel like I enjoyed reading this play. Um, and I feel like after hearing you say that, I'm like, dang, I got to read more. But I was gonna, I was gonna ask you if you enjoyed reading the play, even if it was maybe kind of new. I did, yeah. Um, I going into it, like, so I read it on a Kindle, which sometimes when I'm reading a book on a Kindle, it already presents its own challenges because you can't flip around as easily. And the first page of this play just like listed all of the, um, all the the characters, and I immediately was like, dang it, I'm not gonna be able to flip back and like check on who these characters are. Um, cause you know, the way the play works is it's just like, you're just reading all the dialogue essentially with sporadic, um, kind of stage instruction. And so mm-hmm. I thought, you know, Oh man, I'm going to forget who the characters are. I'm gonna have to turn turn back and stuff. So going into the first scenes, I was like, Oh man, I hope this is doable, but it never really was a problem. And, um, yeah, I felt like 
the characters felt so defined both just by what they talk about and how they even spoke um, in their dialogue that I felt like it was, it was pretty easy to track with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it, um, like I said, we did, we were in a musical together in high school. I didn't act a whole lot, but I really enjoyed it. And, um, it felt like it made me want to like act again. And as I was reading, I found myself almost not just reading, but like verbalizing the dialogue in my head as a way mm-hmm. to, to visualize it. And so, um, yeah, I feel like usually when I read a novel, I'm not, I'm not like, uh, consciously verbalizing all the words. I'm just like reading them. Um, if that makes any sense. But I felt like as I read this, I wanted to like read at the pace that I would be acting it out or listening to it, um, from stage. And so, yeah, I would agree. It makes me miss, it makes me miss acting too. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I kind of abandoned that after high school. I just stuck with choir, <laughs> which was great, but I, I, when I read stuff like this, it makes me kind of yeah. wish I could jump back or yeah. it's not impossible to get back into it. If you or I ever wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. community theaters, all that stuff, you can always audition for those, but oh yeah, it's just not where we're at in our lives, mm-hmm. but it's fun to kind of put yourself into the place of the body that would be on stage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I felt like it almost made me care about the characters and the story a little more than an average novel would, because I had to like, create them in my mind more than I would when I read a novel, because when you read a novel or whatever, it's like they describe the characters for you. They give you the visual, they give you the movement, like everything is kind of done for you. And there's still some imagining that happens in your mind, but definitely not as much as when you're reading a play. And so, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, by the end of the story, it felt like I have kind of, um, not fully created the characters obviously, but in my own mind kind of put them together and, imagined them and kind of somewhat embodied them and um as i read it and so by the end of it i felt just a a a weird kind of surprising connection to the characters that even though it's a short play i don't usually feel for characters in long long novels you know yeah and it's an incredible exercise in dialogue like Mm -hmm. everything you're saying about being able to imagine what a character looks or sounds like without the you know, four or five page description of their mm-hmm. face yeah. and shirt and pants. Um, playwrights, great playwrights like Tracy Letts, like have the ability to make all that still materialize in your mind just through dialogue. Yeah. And maybe you don't get a perfect idea of what, you know, Violet looks like or what Beverly mm-hmm. looks like, but you most crucially you get an idea of how they sound and the way they carry themselves and what their flaws are all just through the way they talk to each other. It's really incredible. That's when I'm trying to write. Like if I need to practice writing dialogue, which is something that I'm hit and miss on when I write (laughs) my own stories. Uh, sometimes it goes really well. Sometimes I reread the dialogue the next (laughs) day and I'm like, Oh, that was crap. (laughs) Um, uh, plays are a really good way to, like see the strategies that work and don't work into practice dialogue. So dang, that's good. Yeah, it was a blast. Well, let me give uh, some quick Wikipedia facts about this play, and then we can dive into a little bit about what it's about. And then, yeah, we'd love to hear all the things you love about it. Yeah, yeah. So cool. let's, uh, let's hear that. Let's see Wikipedia. August Osage County says it's a tragic comedy, which I have never heard of before. But I guess it is a good description, a tragic comedy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it won the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for drama, which is top of the line. So, and so a lot of you, Tonys you and stuff well. under there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It uh, premiered in Chicago, 2007. <clears throat> so it's a pretty modern play, which I, a lot of times when I think of like, oh, you should read this play, I think of older stuff. Um, maybe that's just because that's all we read in like high school and stuff. But this, yeah, yeah, I think we were biased. But... Yeah, we just got all the old stuff that we didn't want to read. Uh, but yeah, this was 2007, and so relatively new in the play world. Um, and yeah, it was on. It was in Chicago for a couple months, and then went to Broadway for just under two years. So had a good run. It also got made into a movie, which I think before. Um, before you'd messaged me about it, I think that was the only time I'd actually ever heard of it was the movie that came out seven, six or seven years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't see it, but I saw some trailers in it. Pretty star-studded uh, movie, kind of yeah, trying to follow Yeah, I, I still footsteps. haven't watched it. I, I keep, it's on my list like sometime this week or next mm-hmm. week to do so. Yeah, and I just keep I keep like not getting around to it. But you're, that's like a star, that is a loaded cast for sure. Yeah, I feel like they had to try to live up to the the legend that the play had left, you know. And so it's got like Meryl Streep, Julia Roberts, Benedict Cumberbatch, a lot of yeah, they're they're all in a lot there. of famous I think people. Ewan McGregor, I yeah, think is yeah. in there. I think it got generally good reviews. I think it wasn't mm-hmm. like a knock out of the park. Yeah, but it was uh, but. Gen- generally did a good job. Mm-hmm. Was looking. Census. Yeah, well, the, the reading the play definitely made me want to watch it or you know catch the play sometime. And um, I watched the trailer, and it felt like, um, yeah, I mean, I'd only had my own visual images of what the play looked like or what the characters sounded like, but it felt like the movie, at least in the trailer, really lived up to the dialogue and the characters of the play. So yeah, could be cool to check out. But obviously, neither of us have watched this. So maybe we'll watch it and think that was terrible. So. Yeah, don't take that word for it. We're setting ourselves up. Oh yeah, don't just go in with pretend you never heard this podcast. Just go in with like open eyes and enjoy. Meryl Streep, so I don't know how bad it could be, but she doesn't. She rarely, she rarely screws up. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Well, let's give a little bit of an overview of the plot, and uh, yeah, if you're listening, know that uh, Dustin and I have promised each other that we're not going to spoil until we establish that. We're going to cross the bridge into spoiler land. Uh, but we both have acknowledged that we could screw up. So Yes. We'll do yes. our best. I, I, <laughs> we'll, I tend we'll to screw those things up. But I think if, if, if you'll allow me, I think I can summarize the plot right now very oh, quickly do without giving anything away. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So August Osage County takes place in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, which is kind of outside of Tulsa, out on the frontier, in 2007. The premise of the plot, the thing that kicks it all off, is that Beverly Weston, who is Violet Weston's husband, a well-known poet for a book of poetry he published earlier in his life, and the father to three daughters, has gone missing. So the family, like the immediate family, all come home to support Violet and try to figure out where Beverly went. Mm -hmm. And they bring kind of the strings out as far as husbands or kids or any of that stuff with them. So that's that's kind of the thing that kicks it all off. The overall plot that runs throughout the whole play is kind of an examination of family dynamics, good, bad, and ugly, that are brought to the forefront in mm-hmm. Beverly's absence. So it's yeah. kind of like Beverly's absence is a subplot 
but it kicks off a much bigger discussion yeah. about family and conflict. And we can, we can get into all the themes mm-hmm. in a little bit, but yeah. that's kind of the overall plot. That doesn't spoil anything, right? No, I don't think so. It, yeah, it feels like to kind of give the overview of the, of the story, it's pretty open-ended. It's like, well, the family gets together because the kind of patriarch of the family disappears and then it just kind of keeps going. <laughs> like, yeah, I, it's kind of like what, what happens when everyone mm-hmm. is in the same room together. It's like a more nuanced Thanksgiving dinner play. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, yeah. I think what you said was true where <clears throat> the, the story of like Beverly's disappearance is not like the overall story, but I kind of liked it as the, the thing that like drop that pulls you in at the beginning. <laughs> Cause mm-hmm, I, I feel like sure. some stories that like this, that maybe don't have a huge like plot to them. It's just more of a um, meditation on a kind of moment or on a um, couple days. I feel like this story worked well that it, there was like the beginning thing that like pulled me in and made me want to understand the characters. And then even by the end of the story, you know, Beverly's disappearance is, is not the, the big idea at that point, but it really worked well as like a um, kind of an explosive beginning to draw me in, which I, I really appreciated. Yeah. And that's credit to Tracy Letts' oh, yeah. structure because that kind of story where it's more of a meditation or an examination on certain things can be really hard to keep a pace mm-hmm. through. Is my understanding. I yeah. say that like I'm an expert author, I'm not. <laughs> but those kinds of things can become sort of melodramatic yeah. or slow very easily. And this play never feels slow, even though there's not necessarily yeah. a plot line akin to mm-hmm. a superhero movie, you know? Yeah. Well, I think even like viewing those kinds of movies or stories, like as a viewer, you can feel when there's no pace to it. But it was true. It felt like. Uh, it kind of felt like a page turner, which is a weird story or a weird term to like put on a story that's so um, like an examination of something. And I felt like, I don't know, I don't know how he did it, but I wanted to know what was happening next, even though there wasn't like a big mystery to be solved. And I was, I was impressed by that. Yeah. It, it felt like, uh, speaking of mysteries, I felt like uh, Knives Out a little bit to me. Have you seen that movie? Just watched that. I just watched that. Hunter and I just watched that. Uh, for the first time a few nights ago. Nice. Yeah, it felt like uh, at the start, because Knives Out is about um, an older, or like the patriarch of this big family um, gets murdered. And so it's like a classic murder mystery where August Osage County isn't that. But it felt like that where it was like, okay, the, the patriarch of this family, something happens to him, and then the whole family gets together and everything starts to fall apart and stuff. and yeah, that so. was that was actually a parallel that I was wondering if it would come up at all while we were mm-hmm. discussing it. Was that uh, you're starting? To, I feel like you're starting to see more and more stories where there's a patriarch who's handing something of an American <laughs> tradition off. So knives out. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's his name? Who was the patriarch in that? I can't think of what his name was. I don't even know. Uh, but he. Yeah, that's kind of the whole premise of the mm-hmm. the thing is that he's handing off all his wealth and obligations to uh, Anna de Armas' character. Mm-hmm. And we do have that here, too. This yeah. is where I think, but I didn't even think Beverly has a conversation. Yeah, there is a conversation between Beverly and the Native American Cheyenne housekeeper named Jonah. Um, 
in which he kind of signals sort of a handoff of something of the American tradition Mm -hmm. that he embodies or that his family embodies. And that's kind of a low simmering theme throughout the play. That's definitely interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah. Dang. I didn't even think about that. I'm starting to feel like knives out should like, Needs to give some credit. <laughs> so yeah, many, like they uh, didn't do it first. <laughs> yeah, I guess Knives Out really is like a murder mystery where this one doesn't really. Um, the disappearance of Beverly is not the right. biggest idea, but yeah. So that's that's kind of a little overview. Let's dive into a little bit about what you what you love about it. So I texted you and said, "Hey, what's a favorite story of yours that I should read? What made you uh, suggest August Osage County?" For some reason, I come back and reread this play every couple of years. I think it's because the themes it discusses and the way it discusses them are pretty relevant to a lot of what's happening in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, when we talk about generational divides in the U.S., I think one of the the reasons I keep coming back to it is definitely personal, because Mm -hmm. that's a way in which people interact with literature. So some of the family conflict and the way it plays out in the play resembles some things that I've experienced in my life. And I think a lot of people who read it probably have at least had moments of some of the things they see in the book Mm -hmm. uh, when their families have been both at their best and at their worst. But beyond the personal being able, being able to relate personally to it, I just think it, takes some very large and sometimes very difficult discussions to relay to people and Mm -hmm. makes them very digestible and characters that are easy to either love or hate (laughs) characters who have clear motivations and clear flaws and interactions between almost every character that I think anyone who's reading it, regardless of whether they can directly identify to the sort of dying frontier theme Mm -hmm. that's involved. I think the dynamics between people in the play are super digestible for people. Yeah. So I think, I think it's just a play that reads really easily. That is easy to gather the messages and themes from. Mm -hmm. It's not overly dense. Yeah. And yet it's so, like the interactions present in it are incredibly potent and you certainly, you certainly internalize them pretty quickly. So yeah, I think it's just the perfect balance of digestible, Mm -hmm. but uh, deep diving and it has the personal connection for me too. So it's like the perfect storm. Dang. Yeah. I think I didn't even think about that. What you were saying, how it is a really good balance of both digestible, but also deep. Like it, it, like we've been talking about kind of these stories that are very um, meditative and are like an examination of a theme. We, like we've kind of said some of those stories can be really dense or almost boring. And um, I feel like this book or this play, um, yeah, it's totally digestible, but not at like a cost of quality. Like there's still so much to be taken from it, so much to um, so much of an experience reading it, but it's not necessarily like, there's not as much of a learning curve as some other stories require, which right. is very impressive. Which goes back to why this would be a great play for anyone who's not familiar with reading plays oh, definitely. to get started with. Yeah. This is a good gateway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
thing. What's a, start unpacking a couple of the themes and things that you really enjoy. What are some of the more notable things that stick out to you from the, from the story? Overall themes in the story, I wrote down uh, three or four big ones. So family conflict, and it's amazing all the different directions Tracy Let's goes with that. Yeah. So you get conflict between individuals within the family, and almost almost every base is covered. Like mm-hmm. the conflict between Violet and her oldest daughter, separately from Violet and her youngest daughter, separately from her youngest daughter and her youngest daughter's uncle. Like there's yeah. so each individual relationship and the conflict present present in it shows and then the overall family conflict the troubled dynamics Mm -hmm. it's all there so group and individual conflict opioids and alcohol uh i think this play was a little ahead of its time and so one of the one of the things that is a motif in the play is that violet is constantly throwing back her muscle relaxers Mm -hmm. and And violet is the a uh... lot of Violet's the wife of the yeah, sorry, disappeared disappeared guy. I'll pipe in. You can keep going. Yes. I'll, I'll just think yeah, about the listener and then they, I'll give yeah, the info. Where I am talking about <laughs> things that no one has any idea what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, so Violet's the matriarch, the wife of the guy that's missing. Mm-hmm. And she's most of the conflict and dialogue comes back to her. Mm-hmm. So the meditation that's going on almost always finds its way back to something about her yeah good or bad uh so she's an extremely crucial character Mm -hmm. in the play uh and she's always taking her muscle relaxers she's constantly taking her opioids um alcoholism like she talks about her husband's alcoholism and the presence of alcohol for different characters at different times throughout the play Mm -hmm. is evident uh but especially the pills so substance abuse in general is discussed uh, demographics in the U.S. This is the role I think the housekeeper Jonah, the Cheyenne mm-hmm. housekeeper, plays, especially positioned through a lot of the play. If you pay attention to stage directions, hmm. uh, the way she comes in and out of the play is super crucial to understanding wow. the message that's being sent with her. She doesn't have a ton of lines or dialogue, but when she does, it's extremely crucial. Hmm. Um, so shifting shifting ideas of who is American. A lot of the discussions we're having about race and mm-hmm. demographics can be viewed through the lens of Jonah, the native American housekeepers role in the play. Yeah. And then finally trauma. So amid all of that, and especially the family conflict and the pill and alcohol mm-hmm. usage, the effect of trauma on individuals and then the way it has a tendency to get stuck in a family lineage and to carry down, uh, that is super there. So family conflict, cool. opioids and substance use, shifting ideas of who's American and trauma on the individual or group. Those mm-hmm. are the big ones. Dang. Yeah. It, and I think it's, it's almost masterful how, uh, Tracy lets like, it's, it's wild. Cause none of those topics are like super addressed. You know, I mean, they're all present, but it, it really is impressive how he makes it like, it doesn't feel like a documentary about these things or like a, um, like in a, a specific, very informational, educational thing about all of those topics. It feels like they're just really believable characters and those themes are like deep in their lives. 
And so it comes out through the dialogue and it's, man, it's impressive. As we keep talking, I just keep thinking like, man, this guy really wrote a good play. <laughs> what, uh, what are there any like, yeah, did a very nice job. Yeah. Well, he won the Pulitzer. So he's got his, uh, he's got his, his reward for it. Um, are there any like scenes in particular or moments of dialogue that, um, stand out to you for either one of the themes or all of them or a couple of them, um, moments of the play that stand out for you? Yeah. Uh, let me look at my notes that I made as I reread it. I would say there's a couple crucial quotes that I really want to make sure we mention in the podcast. Maybe we can just talk about quotes yeah. in general, but I think the perhaps the most crucial I would say one of the most crucial scenes is the dinner scene. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So this is when everybody is finally, for those who haven't read the play, this is finally seated in the dining room together. Jonah, mm -hmm. the housekeeper has prepared a large dinner. Uh, Beverly is still not in the picture and everybody is seated for dinner. Mm -hmm. And if you've ever had, a Thanksgiving dinner that had any sense of tension. And actually you don't even need to have had that happen because it's something that gets talked about yeah, and written about and reported on every year about how impossibly tense Thanksgiving dinners can get. <laughs> this will feel like that run off the rails. Now this mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the politics, the way we tend to think of it. It's about some other more personal individual, the family things. Mm -hmm but trying really, really hard to keep a cap on everything. And sure enough, within a couple pages of dinner, uh, that's an act two. Yep. That is a super crucial scene where you learn a lot about what's really going on under the surface. At one point, uh, Charlie, I believe it is page 93 for me. Violet, the matriarch, is basically just on a rampage. She is just tearing into everybody. And her conflict mm -hmm. with her oldest daughter specifically uh, is really raging. And at one point, Charlie says, you're in rare form today, Vi, because she is just tearing apart the table. Yep. And eventually it all blows up. Uh, I won't say who or what. There's like a certain level of a tussle, mm -hmm. uh, a physical tussle, a power struggle for the matriarchy. And it's just, it's an incredibly written scene. Yeah. yeah. Which, it's your version, comes back later in the play over a plate of fish. Um, and that scene is also very hilarious in the most tragic way. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the dinner scene? Yeah. I think what you said, even for that last scene is probably an accurate uh summary of it where it's hilarious in a tragic way um <clears throat> like it's kind of entertaining i guess to watch the way the 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 scene unravels partially because it's so like believable and it feels like yeah if these characters were we're all at dinner together this is exactly what would be happening um and i i mean even in the conversation of reading a play versus reading a book some parts of it were kind of funny because at least in my uh, copy of it, there were moments where there's like three conversations happening 
like parallel down the down the yes. page. So yes. you can imagine like a play where three people are talking at once, and it's like even the task of me reading that <laughs> like gets me in the the room where I kind of have to pick like I can't really follow all these at once. I gotta like read. I gotta focus on one. But then go back and maybe read the other one or like try to read them all at once. It's as if, you know, you're sitting at the table, like trying to like keep track. And like, like you said, keep the cap on the, the, all the tension that is um, present and rising. Um, but yeah, I thought, I thought that scene was, um, it felt like, so like you said, it's act two. So it felt like act one is a couple scenes of a lot of establishing characters and establishing like getting people to the house, whatever. And it felt like this act two, which is all just the dinner scene, um, felt like, okay, everybody's here. Let's press play and see what happens. And it was, it felt like it, mm-hmm. it summarized, you know, I mean the whole, the whole play to an extent of just the tension and the, the moments of the, I feel like the ones, the one moment that st- stood out to me as just like, I felt like I could tangibly feel the awkwardness is um it's on it's on page 80 84 85 to me but um it's just a scene where they're at the table and they're about to eat and then someone's like wait should we say grace for the meal and they're all like oh uh yeah and then they kind of like bounce around like wait who's gonna <laughs> and then like one of the uncles is like oh okay i can i can do it and then like right as he starts praying someone's phone rings <laughs> and he's got to like step out and then he just kind of is fumbling around words and it's like quite a juxtaposition from the the scene because he's kind of trying to say like uh thank you god for like the family and this house and all of our relationships <laughs> and it's, it's it's so tangibly like that is the opposite of what they're all feeling like they are all just like what yeah am it's I doing uh, it's meant to be incredibly forced and awkward <laughs> yeah. yeah steve leaves to take a phone call for his Offshore accounts, which sound like they're probably funding some sort of offshore conflict. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all at the table just praying it up. <laughs> yeah, uh, for, for anyone who's listening who wants kind of a quote of the moment Davis is talking about. So to say grace, Charlie kind of gets tasked with saying grace, Uncle Charlie, because uh, they say he's the patriarch. Now he says I am. So he's not even sure of <laughs> his role in the family before this even starts. But he clears his throat and says, Dear Lord, we ask that you watch over this family in this sad time, O Lord, ellipses, that you bless this good woman and keep her in your, in your grace. And then a cell phone rings and Steve, uh, <laughs> who's kind of a jerk, he'll come to find out. He's like, I got to take this. So he gets up and leaves. <laughs> and Charlie tries to go on. And says, we ask Beverly too, which is our missing uh, patriarch, as he as he makes his journey and then later on he says we recognize now more than ever the power the the joy of family <laughs> and it's clearly so forced uh, yeah and the second bill who's barbara's husband the oldest daughter's husband says let's eat everybody's like that it's like it never happened it's mm-hmm. like grace uh never happened so yeah um yeah definitely a good moment to examine kind of the absence of any unity yeah <clears throat> oh yeah yeah and it feels like it's just a little pause before the uh just 
unraveling, you know, I mean, once they're done, once that moment, I mean, it's not necessarily actual unity, but they're at least all quiet. They're all, you know, just waiting. And it feels like right when that's over, like you said, they dive in to eat and it's just like disunity. Everybody's kind of back on their own again. And yeah, man, that, that whole scene just felt masterful. And, um, like you said, it kind of reaches a peak where things start to fall apart and literally and metaphorically like wrestling for control. And, um, yeah, that it's quite a scene. Yeah. It's, uh, that one's super crucial. I'm trying to think of what other one or two, we don't have to dive into them. We dove into that. One of them is the very ending, but we're not going to spoil that yet. So yeah. yeah we can that. hold off. We uh, can dive into it later. What, what, uh, yeah, were there any uh, quotes from the earlier part of the, the story or, um, early scenes that you wanted to chat about? Yeah. Let me page for, for me, it was page 54. So this is in scene three. Uh, Barbara, Barbara, who's the oldest daughter is talking to her daughter, Jean, who's uh, like 15 years old about the sheriff who has come to the house a couple times and says that she had wanted to run with him or ran with him when she was younger in high school. Yeah, he was a prom date. Mm-hmm. And she kind of goes on this brief monologue, reflecting back and being nostalgic about that. And uh, she says, thank God we can't tell the future. We'd never get out of bed. That That is maybe my favorite line in the entire play is, thank God we can't tell the future. We'd never get out of bed. It's not my favorite line because it's necessarily universally applicable because mm-hmm. I think there are people who are living content and happy enough lives that they're excited to get out of bed every day. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea that the future can often be terrifying and turns out being, even if it's not terrifying, that a lot of people's lives do end up being more flat or traumatic or kind of helplessly normal Mm -hmm. uh, than they had intended when they were younger and everything was free and innocent and dreamy. That's kind of what her line hints at. Thank God we can't tell the future. We'd never get out of bed because if the future just isn't that interesting for you or is full of the kind of conflict that this family uh, is going through. Barbara, the woman who says that line is going through a divorce with her sort of narcissistic scholarly husband who's Mm -hmm. having an affair with uh, one of his students at the college. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, but the way that line's written is part of what I love too. Thank God we can't tell the future. We'd never get out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's my, I thought that quote was, was great too. That was the kind of quote where I almost like, I stopped when I read it and was like, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) It was one of those quotes where it feels like, wow, if if that was a normal person, I don't think she would have spoken with such eloquence, but it's a play. So it makes sense that, (laughs) that she has it. But, um, yeah, I remember there's even like, I was thinking of just the parallels in the story that a lot of the, or there's just a lot of discussion of like hopes for the future and whether or not they, they play out as um, hoped for. I mean, it unpacks a little bit of um, Beverly and Violet's kind of up or as they grew up and 
what their career goals were. And they're like the kind of the old people of the family that, um, have kind of reached their, their peak, I guess. And it, it unpacks how they kind of reached the goals and, and made waves that they were hoping to make. Um, but then for every one of their kids and, um, even their kids, kids, it unpacks, you know, well, I have these goals for my life and some of them feel like they've made it. Some of them are still trying to get their way there. And I feel like Barbara, if I'm remembering correctly, um, kind of, it feels like she thought she had made it. And a lot of the book is her realizing, like, I don't think I've like the future that I had hoped for has not turned out, you know, as I thought it was going to, even though I thought I was, you know, walking down the right paths and pursuing the dream. Well, um, yeah, and it feels like this as the, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say this, this moment in that we get to see these couple of weeks or whatever, um, feels like it's, it's like a time where she's just getting a, a heavy dose of reality, um, that she's not a big fan of. <laughs> yeah. She's kind of positioned as, uh, the one going through her reckoning through the play. So mm-hmm. her, her role is heightened a little over that of her sisters yeah. and, and over some of the, the other supporting characters. And a lot of it is because, um, Tracy Letts ends up making a parallel between Barbara and her mother, as well as a parallel between Barbara and her father at times. Yeah. So Barbara more and more starts to, she's kind of the embodiment of, I say, I see a theme of the way trauma passes through generations Mm -hmm. uh, and how you can't always necessarily get away from what was wrong with what came before you. Barbara is one who very nearly gets, uh, gets trapped in that cycle and Mm -hmm. gets washed up and, she, in a lot of ways, is just like her, her mother in her most terrible moments. And I think yeah. that's a thing that scares her. Um, yeah. It's one of the times <clears throat> in the play that Violet, who is rather uh, difficult to talk to, is kind of right. She kind of calls Barbara out and says that you and I aren't so different. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you're right. She's kind of going through a reckoning. So. Yeah. Yeah, that does feel like quite an eye-opener for Barbara when her her mom is like, yeah, we're not as different as you think. And it feels like that's not, Barbara really wants to convince herself that she's a different person, you know, but she's realizing she's probably not as much as she thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, th- and it, there's that part where it's in uh start of scene three in act three. So kind of coming up on the end of the play where, Barbara is positioned in the same kind of posture, pose, and location in the house and in the same conversation as Beverly, her father, was at an earlier point. Yeah. Uh, So there's like a direct line being drawn between generations of the family just Mm -hmm. in the way they are sitting in the scene. Yeah. uh, Which should always signal should always signal some pretty crucial commentary anytime a playwright does that. Oh, absolutely. And it felt like I was kind of thankful that um, when you see a play, you know, you might even miss little things like that. I feel like a lot of times they're actually staged somewhat explicitly. So you understand the parallels, but um, I was thankful. I was, when I was reading the book, you know, occasionally there'd be stage directions or there'd be a description of what the stage looks like. And it felt like, um, some of the themes and the parallels were just kind of placed right in my lap. <laughs> Cause I was like, well, anytime that it's telling me the stage direction, I should be pretty confident that it's like 
the kind of direction that I need to know to understand the themes. So that's one bonus of reading it is you kind of know, all right, if there's a stage direction written in here, it's a big deal. So I should take note of it. And that was one of them. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good catch. Um, sweet. Well, I'm going to ask one question and then let's dive into some spoilers. I feel like, yeah, I'm ready to unpack themes fully. <laughs> But before we do that, yeah, um, do for people who have not listened or have not read the play or seen the movie or whatever, um, that might be about to log off due to spoilers, what would you say to those people that have not read the play? Who do you think would enjoy this play? Who do you think should read it? And, and what would you say to them? I think if you have experienced any amount of sort of difficult relationship or trauma in your family, not just over the dinner table, but if you've ever gotten into tense and terse conversations about maybe your politics mm. or your youth versus their being from like the greatest generation or the mm. boomers, uh, conversations about what it means to be rural mm -hmm. us that's something we haven't really touched on but this is this is a play that takes place you know out on the oklahoma frontier uh so that might make it accessible to people who aren't urbanites yeah um, although i think urbanites have a lot of concern for some of the uh social themes that are in this play yeah uh, so anyone with a personal connection to family trauma anyone with an interest in what the u.s used to be and might be in the future and anyone who just wants anyone who needs a gateway into the world of theater mm -hmm. that we know exists but that we don't spend enough time in so yeah. if you have the personal experience a family can tear itself apart um, even in small doses or mm -hmm. less severe ways if you have a concern for the way we transition through phases of our country's livelihood and demographics, hmm. and then if you just want a play that's kind of easy to grasp, yeah, those those crowds would want to read this. Definitely, yeah. It felt like, um, like you were saying, it's 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 a good, it's an easy read. Like it, it draws you in. It's a. Um, it's a short kind of read because it is a play. So you're not, you're not having to fly through a ton of descriptions or anything. You're just reading the dialogue and flying through the story. Well, let's, uh, let's do a little transition into spoilers. So if you're listening and, um, you have not read the book or you have not, whatever, you know who you are, go ahead and stop listening. And at this point, if you're still on, it's on you. And, there we go. All right. Well, Dustin, maybe unpack. That's uh, yeah, your fault. <laughs> yeah. Unpack anything that you've wanted to say so far that you had to hold back on. Just go crazy now. No rules. Sure. The, the initial about Bentley is wrapped up before you even enter Act 2. Yep. So... Uh, the spoiling that Beverly did in fact disappear to uh, go uh, commit suicide it appears to be a suicide. Um, 
reasons for why he would want to do so are explored throughout the rest of the play, but mm -hmm. only one-third of the play is actually concerned at all with Beverly's disappearance. Yeah. The other two-thirds of the play are all about what that triggers, mm -hmm. which is a great, masterful way to set the whole thing up. But yeah. what you think is going to be the plot really isn't uh, mm. necessarily the key plot. And yeah. that's, yeah, it's over within one act. So that, yeah. that spoiler, um, and I, I have to, I have to go over the way it ends. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, yeah. So through act three, there's kind of a slow departure mm -hmm. of characters. So there's these truths that are revealed like pent up words and emotions finally spoken and then characters start to exit. They kind of go on like ultimatums are mm -hmm. given responsibility is passed. Like the buck is passed between people mm -hmm. and eventually withers down to where it's just Barbara and her sister Ivy, who still eventually makes an exit before Barbara does uh, their mother, Violet and the mm -hmm. housekeeper, Jonah. And this is where Barbara's kind of meditating on the fact that she might get stuck here. She feels yeah. an obligation to take care of her mother, but she also knows her mother is a terror. Yeah. And basically, there's this tragic moment for Violet, the matriarch, who we've understood to be rather difficult, where once everyone else from her family has exited, she's kind of calling out. She's, she's like calling for Barbara calling for Ivy, calling for Beverly, her dead husband. And she's finally left to call out for her housekeeper, Jonah, who throughout much of the play, she's been racist to. Mm -hmm. She's talked about the Indian living in her attic, uh, this kind of like prairie frontier sort of racism that we're pretty familiar with at this point. Yeah. But she's left crying out for Jonah, who has been very forgiving and loved the entire play and, yeah. As the play trails out, she's calling out for Jonah and Jonah comes to find her as Violet is like crawling up the stairs. Yeah. And jo Jonah sings to her a song she knows in which the lyrics are, this is the way the world ends. And Violet is kind of mumbling under her breath. And then you're gone. And then you're gone. And then you're gone. So there's this tragic moment where yeah. in trying to deal with herself, Violet has sort of, forced everyone out of her life and mm -hmm. the only one that's left to console her for her to see the only human being left is uh the character that represents a sort of shift or change or mm -hmm. kind of a hovering spirit of the frontier throughout the entire oh. way so it's kind of like this it's a reckoning and a tragic fallout all at once and i just think it's a a beautiful a, be a beautiful ending even yeah. if it's rather sad. So yeah, that's, I had, I had to go through that cause I that's love that good. ending. And then yeah, Beverly's disappearance and I'll leave the, I, I'm sure you want to mention that Ivy and little Charles spoiler. Yeah. That, that so. was the other spoiler that I thought was, uh, that we shouldn't spoil. <laughs> I feel like that's, I guess if there is like a second half plot, I feel like that was kind of one of them that, yeah, ultimately gets yeah. What a, what a weird, opened up. A weird one, too. It really mm -hmm. was. It was one of those, like, when I first acknowledged it, I'm kind of like, wait, what? Like, is that that's a part of the story now? Okay. Um, yeah, so the that spoiler, I guess, is Ivy, who is one of Violet's, um, the matriarch's daughter, 
daughters. Um, I'm pretty sure the youngest daughter, who um, yes, is kind of kind of like a classic. The the all the older people in the family are like Ivy. You should you know date somebody. You should like always kind of hounding her to be with somebody. And eventually, you learn that she actually is with somebody and has been for a while. But it's um, her cousin, little Charles, who is also eventually in the story. Um, and yeah, so they're kind of keeping that a secret because they realize that's kind of um, out of the ordinary, and they don't think the family will love it. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, I guess, once you figure out what happens to Beverly, that was one of the plots that kept me kind of intrigued. Like, well, how's it going to play out? Like, what, I, obviously, Violet wouldn't be a fan. <laughs> She'd probably have some uh, things to say about that. But, obviously, everybody else, too, starts to learn and starts to kind of un- unpack it and what they think. And then, ultimately, you, re- you find out that they're not cousins. They're half-siblings, um, which is kind of a gasping moment <laughs> as you read it you're like oh this got even more interesting um, yep yeah mm-hmm. but unpack a little bit for me dustin what do you <laughs> what do you feel about that uh, plot line what do you feel like tracy letts was accomplishing i guess with that one yeah i think my overall feeling on what he was trying to accomplish was ivy and He's called Little Charles because he's kind of the very shy, reserved, awkward, failed son or nephew. Uh, He missed the funeral because he, uh, well, he said accidentally missed his alarm, but then it comes out that maybe he didn't even want to set it in the first place Mm because he's afraid of being in that environment, which is very toxic for him. Yeah. And it becomes clear that Ivy and little Charles have this relationship, which is a little weird because they're first cousins, but they're past childbearing age, which is kind of her logic, I think. And the way they're kind of set up is that even though their relationship is flawed in that way, that isn't really typical these days, they seem like the closest thing to something promising huh. in this house that's like the kind of i think they're sort of like yeah so you take an odd and early unacceptable situation and you make that the closest thing to honest yeah. care and love that Dang. we see between two characters in the play yeah so that's already you end up rooting for them because of what's going on around them that's even if true. you think their relationship's a bit out there and then, so you think you finally have one redeeming pair of characters throughout the entire play. Dreams look and sound like they will be viable. Yeah. And then just a few pages from the end, that gets ripped out from underneath Ivy because of some decisions that her aunt, Violet's sister, engaged in, which was that she kind of had a running affair with Beverly. Mm-hmm. So, um, her brother, her brother-in-law. So that's Man. what I think yeah. Tracy Les was trying to accomplish was he, he, he gave you an uncomfortable situation that was still the most promising thing in the play. So you came to root for that. And then that see that situation became untenable. Man. So he throws in one twist that takes it from being, you're kind of like, eh, 
to well that just can't yeah like, you're like, like you like and everyone in the play knows like you can't yeah. can't let them go forward with this but for ivy who has spent her life trying to be the daughter who has a level head and tries to actually see how terrible what's happening in their house is to have the promise of getting out kind of ripped out from her like that because of something someone in the family did because of decisions that weren't hers. Wow. That's kind of the ultimate perversion of her dream. So that's supposed to be a particularly gut twisting plot twist. Man, I'm glad I asked that question. I hadn't even thought of like (laughs) most of those layers to that, especially like, man, yeah, it is the, of all the relationships in the house, that's like the most normal. And, you know, it, yep. it almost seems she like and little Charles seem, seem, yeah. It's like, I mean, all the other relationships and marriages are falling apart or have fallen apart. And, you know, you look at those and think like, well, those are like normal, you know, as we'd imagine them culturally. And this one relationship that is on the more abnormal side is ultimately the, the, healthiest which is wild but yeah yeah, i hadn't even thought about the fact that yeah ultimately what what tears apart that dream and that um healthy relationship is is yeah it's it's what her um parents or what the the older generation um kind of selfishly did and it's totally out of ivy and little charles control and it's um yeah i mean it's like what's done is done and they're just kind of inheriting it and man what a uh, what a parallel to the the story as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and That's you're wild. right that like what you said about how it makes a commentary on generations, and then mm-hmm. how it makes a commentary on yeah things being kind of out of your control, and the way that you make can have unintended consequences. Yeah, um, it does yeah. a lot too. It's uh, definitely, it definitely at first feels like one of the weirder subplots mm-hmm. of the play, but then when you look at what it says overall, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like as a reader, it makes you question like, well, certainly, you know, I don't know if I'd be like, oh, great, they're cousins, it's fine. Or especially once they're half siblings, you know, it, it, but the whole time in the play, you know, culturally, we're kind of used to like, really broken relationships that on the surface would look normal, which is every other relationship in the house. And so as a reader, it kind of makes you ask the question, like, why was I not so surprised by Barbara and Bill's marriage, which has fallen apart due to unfaithfulness and broken dreams and all these things. But I get caught up in this, this one thing after just overlooking, you know, so much other things that I've become culturally used to. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's it's impressive what it's uh, acceptable. Yeah, yeah, man, what a story. <laughs> yeah, because you're because you're right. Like as Barbara and Bill's marriage troubles become evident, and it ultimately does fall apart by the end of the book. You're really not that surprised. Like, yeah. We're used to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that should be more bothersome than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that's kind of a running theme through the whole thing too, is the way tradition can be perverse or corrupted. I mean, that goes back to when we talked about the, the, uh, saying grace, mm-hmm. like saying grace is supposed to be a 
unifying, consistent tradition. And in this play, that is ruined. Yeah. And then these, like these marriages and these traditions are all ruined. And the only thing that wasn't ruined until the deepest, darkest secret was revealed was a, was a relationship between two first cousins that we come to find out are half siblings. Yeah. So definitely some tradition versus why aren't you more bothered? Like yeah. questions being asked. Yeah, that's good. Dang. Yeah. Is there any, anything else, other scenes or other quotes that um, you want to chat about before we wrap up? Um, let me look. I would say the thing I want people who are listening or people who read it to consider is a question I wrote. Is it necessarily better to run away from trauma? Because the impression you get through the whole play is that if these people would just run and like get out of here, right. they'd probably be better off. <laughs> but there's a crucial thing that happens. We didn't really talk about it, and I won't go into it because I know we've already run pretty long. But Karen sister who we hear in her dialogue is highly insecure it's clear she was kind of the lost sister of the trio has like finally recently found this guy who is stable and has money steve and so the whole play she's like trying to get her sister's validations yeah my whole life i didn't know what i was doing and i finally found it and i found him and he's a nice man and you're gonna come to the wedding right and do you think he's an okay guy she clearly has been insecure her whole life. And she finally is about to settle into stability. Well, the guy, she, her fiance, who's here at the house with everybody, uh, is pervy and ends up yeah. making a rather pervy move on the, the teenager that's in the house. Mm-hmm. And Karen definitely knows. Yeah. She, absol- she a- absolutely knows what he did. But she chooses to leave with him and run away anyway. And what she says right before she exits the play yeah. is... Come January, I'll be in Belize. Doesn't that sound nice? So she is choosing to run from everything that's wrong in this household to the point where her fiancé being pervy with her niece, she is willing to just pretend it didn't happen to get away. So it says one one thing about the extremity of the situation, Mm -hmm. but also I think that's Tracy Letts' This whole play, you get you get the impression that you have to leave something that's toxic, and yeah. then Tracy Letts kind of tells you to. He's like, "Wait a second, look at this character and what she is choosing to ignore for the sake of running yeah. from her family. She's ignoring something very, very wrong." Huh. That is fascinating. You yeah. shouldn't. Yeah, it, it makes me like. I still conclude that overall, I feel like if you're an extremely toxic lineage like that like you do need to at some point let bygones be bygones and cut your time Hmm. in certain ways but like what are you willing to excuse from Mm -hmm. that and it's uh yeah i want to make sure readers pay close attention to that little subplot too with the the pervy uncle that's good yeah i mean even thinking about the imagery of like at a resort in belize versus at this house during these meals, it's like black and white opposite 
But yeah, when you add in, okay, but also at the resort is this guy that you're now married to and you, you, uh, you know what he's done, but you aren't willing to acknowledge it. It kind of raises that question like, okay, yeah, it'd probably be better to be at a resort than at this meal, but is it better to like know what you know and just try to move on at that resort in Belize or is it, are you just lying to yourself? And yeah, I feel like what you said is true where it feels like most of the characters ask that question like, am I, should I stay here? Should I go? Should I be a part of this family? Should I just cut my ties? But yeah, ultimately that Belize picture is like an example of kind of a gray area where it's like, well, she, if she leaves and like keeps this whole thing with Steve, she's, she's making excuses that, um, yeah, probably aren't the best. So it's like all these layers of decisions. People are very willing to dupe themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People will, in the face of things that are extremely painful, I think you kind of get the impression that Tracy Letts believes people will tell themselves whatever they need to, Mm -hmm. to avoid reality. And it's not just Karen that does that in the whole play. But when she gets ready to leave after that incident. And by the way, it's the Native American housekeeper who whacks the pervy uncle yeah. over the head with a cast iron skillet and saves the daughter. So there's more commentary on yep. who's the moral, the moral piece. But when Karen finally gets up to leave, uh, in the face of the clear pervy evil that he has done, she says, let's, uh, where is it at? I'm close. There's Karen. talking about when karen leaves yeah there's a line she's oh here it is um yeah right before she leaves after what's happened karen says i know steve should know better than Jean that she's only 14 my point is it's not cut and dried black and white good and bad it lives where everything lives somewhere in the middle Mm. where everything lives where all the rest of us live everyone but you and she says that to barbara um, as an accusation uh, so yeah she's she's kind of choosing to operate in the gray area yeah. and use that to save herself um, but anyway so that's uh, good other, stuff i think we've hit a lot of the big a lot of the big moments we've unpacked a lot of the plot so if anyone is uh i hope some people are enjoying anyone who does listen to this whole thing i hope this isn't making it less worth reading i know we've <laughs> talked about a lot of what's going on but yeah no man i for one at least have enjoyed the conversation i feel like it makes me want to read it again you know having thought through the lenses that the book is is telling the story through and the different themes that kind of um pervade throughout and yeah man it feels like reading the book was one thing unpacking it and even hearing from your perspective as someone who's read it multiple times and cherishes it a lot it feels like it's opened it up in a even cooler way so i appreciate it dude yeah, and and some of the things that you've pulled out too. Like I told you, I was like writing something down that I want to go back to. Um, I hope you end up feeling the same inclination to reread it from time to time. Oh, definitely. Because I, I think, especially as some of the conversations we have with each other and in the country right now mm-hmm. become very, very loud and very difficult to sort through, something like this that touches on a lot of those big themes, but in a digestible way and was written, uh, 13 years, 13, 14 years 
now. Um, before things were quite as disheveled as they are at this point. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's a very timely read that is a little easier to sort through than a lot of the noise that's around us right now. Absolutely. So as we, as we change as a country every couple of years, the things that are discussed in here have a slightly different hue to them. Yeah. So that's true. Good rereading for that purpose too. No, definitely. Well, man, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, thanks for picking this book. It was great. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, if you ever need any other recommendations, holler at me. If you have any, oh. anything you think I would like to read, of course, I. You bet. My bookshelf's always growing, so send your favorite stuff my way. Oh yeah, and if you ever watch the movie, hopefully it's good because we did recommend it to whoever's listening to this. So. Uh, maybe I'll Hope do it tonight good. and then real quickly you can you can go <laughs> yeah. add like an extra if it's that if it's really bad you can go add like a precursor to the whole yeah. thing that says we recommended this movie, we no longer recommend this movie. Yeah, there you go. Cool, uh, cool. But I'm sure it's fine. Oh yeah. Well I appreciate it, man. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Books My Friends Like. On the next episode. I welcome one of my best friends and college roommates. We discuss a book from 2015 that is only growing in influence five years later. It's a letter from a black father to his son about the realities of growing up as a black person in America. It's a heartbreaking recollection of past and present America and ultimately a perspective that is very helpful and needed for me and my friend as two white guys from Iowa.